All right, we're in the middle of a series called Light and Easy. And, and as we have, have celebrated all that God is doing among us, we are being exposed to this lifestyle that Jesus offers. He offers us an easy and light lifestyle. It's a way of living that is powerful and profound because it's not burdened with the heaviness of life and the heaviness of religion and heaviness of walk with God. It is a free life. It is a, an easy life and a light life. Jesus offers that to all of us. In fact, this revolutionary teaching uh, at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he says this, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Doesn't that sound awesome? Rest. He goes on to say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest, easy, light. Those are words that we just crave, right? We want that kind of life. Now, last week I hear there were some people who didn't understand what a yoke was, and that makes sense. Some of you thought that a yoke was this. We're not talking about the center of an egg. Jesus doesn't, take, doesn't say take the center of an egg upon you. He's talking about a, a beast of burden, right? That, that harness that went over an, an animal's neck. We're not talking about these yokes here that are reading newspapers. We're talking about this yoke right here. This is that, that harness over a beast of burden that carried heavy things, right? Carrying, carrying heavy things, dragging heavy things. We're not talking about this yoke, right? That's Halloween yoke. We're talking about this, the harness over an animal that carried these heavy burdens. And Jesus says, oftentimes life is like that. Life is a heavy burden. Religion is a heavy, heavy burden. We're not talking about this yoke right here. We're talking about this yoke. Jesus says religion can be a heavy burden that is, is just dragging you and causing you to be weary. Jesus says, I want you free from that. We're not talking about a yoke that's yoked. We are talking about this ancient piece of hardware that was wrapped around beasts of burden's necks. And Jesus says, I am going to lighten your load. If you are weary, burdened, exhausted, overwhelmed, overcome, Jesus says, I'm going to lift that from you. And I know so many of us feel that way. So many of us feel that way. Now, the burden of religion at the time of Christ was very heavy. As he looked around, uh, all the people of his nation, the nation of Israel, they took pride in the heavy religious burdens. In fact, they were sort of religious masochists. We want more burdens, a heavier yoke, more commands, more commitment, more hardcore, more all in. And Jesus says, what are you doing to yourselves? God doesn't want you to live like that. Now, Jesus was a rabbi. Now, normally rabbis would give yokes. They called them yokes. Uh, and they said, hey, harness us up. The heavier, the better, right? The more committed, the better. So a rabbi would say to people, hey, I'm going to give you the yoke of Hillel, uh, some famous rabbi, and we are going to carry together the yoke of Hillel. Most rabbis would just keep repeating the old thing. But every once in a while, a rabbi would bring something new. And if they brought something new, speaking with authority, that would be called a shmika. We all need a little shmika, Right? Give me some of that schmicka. They needed schmicka because they were totally oppressed. And for 400 years, just the same old cultural things were being loaded, the same old religious burdens, the same old oppression. And Jesus, the Son of God, saw what was happening in his nation of Israel, and he said, they need some schmicka. And they were definitely saying, I need me some schmicka. So Jesus brought the schmicka. And as he brought it, he brought it with authority. And so people who were bringing schmicka would say things like, hey, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he was redefining our walk with God and redefining God's vision for their life. He brought the shmika. Jesus' shmika was a new yoke of peace, an easy and light way of life. 
This is what Jesus was bringing. This was his new message. This was the redefined relationship with God, the redefined relationship with each other. This was it, an easy and light way of life. Now, he didn't say life would be easy, right? In fact, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But in a broader context of our relationship with him, how do we approach that trouble? Jesus says in John 16, in me, you can have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says, this world's hard sometimes. He's just being very honest about it. This world is very, very hard sometimes, but when you walk with me, you are walking through this difficult life light. You're walking through this difficult life easy. You're walking through this difficult life with grace and love and God himself by your side and a community of support around you. You take my burden, it is easy and light. But this world is difficult. This world has challenges. Uh, work, for example, is just a reality of this world. Work is a blessing, but toil is a curse. And there's so many people who are under the burden of toiling. You just feel like you're spinning wheels and you feel like you're exhausting yourself for no great purpose. That's a heavy burden. Jesus wants that lifted. Relationships are a great blessing, but contention in those relationships is a great curse. And so many people are under the burden, the yoke of contentious relationships. And active life is a blessing. But weariness and busyness is a curse, and so many of you just feel like you can't possibly meet the expectations around you. You're too busy, you're exhausted. Knowing God is a blessing, but religion is a curse. And some of you were raised in religious circles where it's just one burden after the other, and you can never feel like you're satisfying the religious people around you. You never feel like you can satisfy God, so for some of you, you just gave up trying. Struggles happen, it's just a part of life. But to be overwhelmed by those struggles is a curse. Suffering happens. It's just a part of life. Don't be surprised when it happens. Everybody suffers to some degree or another. But to be overcome by suffering or defeated by suffering is a curse. Grief happens. We lose loved ones. Don't be surprised when it happens. But to be swallowed up by grief is a curse. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome this world. In me you can have peace. In fact, Isaiah 26.3 says, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts you. God even says you can have perfect peace. The illustration in my mind is a, is a stable rudder in contentious seas, in, in, in tumultuous seas. So the waves are crashing left and right, but there's a stable rudder that keeps us going and keeps us strong and keeps us steady through all of the turmoil and troubles of life. That's what Jesus offers, steady, sound, determined, confident. Not that we can take it, but that God is with us. God's grace is there, his love never fails, his forgiveness will never be taken away, and we can go through this life in the peace of God and the peace that surrounds us uh, as thousands of friends. So we talked about three areas of peace. We talked about first, peace with God. That's where it all begins. When we understand that God just loves us unconditionally, he loves us without fail. His love will never leave, the, leave us. He's forgiven us through Jesus Christ. He's declared peace on us. We can't make peace with God. We're not good enough on our own to make peace with God, but we can embrace the peace that God gives to us. God makes us peaceful with him. Therefore, we can walk with peace. Last week, Steve talked about peaceful relationships. That peace that comes from God can be shared with one another. And we can live in peaceful relationships, not because other people are peaceful to us. We can't control that but we can control how peaceful we are to others. And Steve talked about the golden rule, right, that was preached by Jesus. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. If we just live that kind of life, not waiting for other people to be peaceful to us, but we just decide to live at peace with everyone, even our enemies. I'm gonna treat everybody the way I wanna be treated. 
that can bring peace in every relationship we have. And then today we're going to talk about a peaceful community. How can that peace extend beyond our personal peace and beyond our relationships, but how can we experience a peaceful community right here at Rancho, a church community, the new community that Jesus came to bring? Terry Green wrote this on the website, the Community Toolbox. Peace starts with a personal calm. That's what we talked about two weeks ago when the series began, calm with God. Then peace expands outward. Peace is contagious. Peace becomes agreement and harmony among people. Doesn't that sound like a wonderful life? Agreement and harmony among people. I mean, what if life was lived with agreement and harmony among people? What if our homes were just agreement and harmony? Not that you agree on every little issue. You don't agree on every, you know, uh, position or stance or politics. But you are living agreeably with one another and living in harmony with one another. What if a house was at peace? How would that change your life? And then if that extended to your your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your church community, in your groups of friends. We can experience communities of peace. That would change everything, absolutely everything. The article goes on to say that peace underlies our quality of life and the fabric of our communities. You can't have a quality of life without peace. You can't have quality communities without peace. From peace, all good things really come. And at its largest scale, peace is to live without violent conflict or war. Peace can spread even to the ends of the earth. Peace can spread globally. Do we need some peace globally? Absolutely. There are still conflict areas in this world that need peace. Now, you may or may not know this, may or may not believe this, but that doesn't matter. It is the most peaceful time in human history right now. I mean by a long shot. The most peaceful time in human history. But there's still areas that need peace. And we can be a part of that peaceful story, not just with us, not just in relationships, not just in community, but throughout the world. Peace is contagious. Harmony is, in fact, the greatest longing of humankind. We want to live in harmony with one another, at home with our marriage, harmony with our kids, harmony with our neighbors and friends and coworkers, harmony in our nation, which is just not happening right now, and harmony in our world. We want that. We long for that. But while harmony is our greatest longing, it is the most elusive reality. And, and, and this, is, this needs to be really caught here. When we don't experience a peace in our communities, when we don't experience a peaceful community, we retreat into ourselves. This is just a law. If we don't experience peaceful community, we retreat into ourselves, and we retreat in three ways. We retreat in fundamentalism. Fundamentalism says, I'm right. I'm right religiously, I'm right politically, my opinions are right, and I have a little group of people around me that I hang out with to validate how right I am. When we don't experience peaceful community, we very much value our fundamental correctness. We also value materialism. When we don't experience a peaceful community, we retreat into materialism. Well, I'm going to get my stuff, my lifestyle, my status, and that's going to make me feel secure. We also retreat into individualism. When we don't experience a community of peace, we retreat into individualism. I want my way, and I will impose my way, and I'll manipulate other people so I get my way. This is what happens when we don't experience peaceful community, and this is the culture of the United States of America. This is not what Jesus brought. I love our country, but there are some things about our country that miss what Jesus offers. Jesus offers a peaceful community. He offers us kind of melding our lives into the lives of a community, not individualism, 
but a fierce dedication for us to experience grace and love and mercy and kindness and service together. That's what Jesus came to deliver. In fact, Jesus envisioned a new community of peace that arises from within a world of strife. A new community of peace. And that's really what the church is supposed to be, a new community of peace. And this was envisioned 800 years before Jesus Christ even came. In fact, Isaiah 9-6 says this. It's the uh, prophecy about the coming of Christ. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This is a name of Jesus, Prince of Peace. And then at the birth of Jesus, which we'll celebrate in a few short months, at the birth of Jesus, this announcement goes out. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Jesus came as the Prince of Peace to build a culture of peace. This is what he wants of us. Now this takes a little bit of shift of mind because when we think of God's saving grace, we think of how God saves us individually. So we fall into the fundamental materialistic, individualistic trap, even when it comes to our own salvation. We think we're saved because we're right. The Western church thinks we're saved because we're right. That's fundamentalism. And then we're saved to go to a mansion with streets of gold. So we're going to be really wealthy. That's materialism. And then we think Jesus came to save us for a personal relationship with him. That's individualism. Our whole salvation spiel here in the West has been around fundamentalism, materialism, and individualism. Why? First of all, because we're Westerners. Second of all, because we have missed the vision that Jesus came to create a community of peace. That he doesn't just want to save individuals from a lost world. He wants to save the world by his grace and by his love. So what does this new community look like? We've got about 15 minutes together, and we're going to talk about the five ingredients of this new community. And as we go through the five ingredients of the new community, I want you to just think about what that might mean in your own life and, and how you value these five things and how we might be able to make some shifts here. First of all, selflessness. You cannot have a new community without selflessness. This is difficult. It's difficult for anybody alive, but it's particularly difficult for those of us in the West those of us in America who have been raised on fierce individualism, to follow Christ, and Christ says, die to yourself. Take up your cross daily. In other words, we die to ourselves every day. That's the call of Christ, and that is so, so hard for us to do. We want our way. We want to get our plans accomplished. We've got our agenda. But essentially what Jesus is saying is wake up every day dead. That's what it means to take up your cross daily. So alarm goes off, beep, 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 uh, I'm alive, nope, I'm dead. I'm not living for myself today. I'm living for the glory of God today and the benefit of others today. I'm living today to love others. That's, I've got my responsibilities at work, I'm gonna do my best, but I'm gonna live for the benefit of others today. As soon as you wake up, I'm alive, nope, I'm dead. Every day, walk the journey of selflessness. That's what Jesus did, right? He's God, the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He chose the road of selflessness. We're not even close. Let's follow Jesus in selflessness. Jesus was walking to Jerusalem on his final journey to Jerusalem. And if you know your history, when he was walking the final journey to Jerusalem, he knew he was going to go there to be betrayed, arrested, tortured, and crucified. He knew he was going to pay the price for his message. His schmicka of peace cost him his life because he came against all the power brokers and authorities who were keeping people under their thumb. 
He knew he was going to Jerusalem to die. So as he's walking to Jerusalem with his friends, with a heavy heart, knowing he's going to lay down his very life, his disciples start bickering behind him. I'm going to be the first in the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to be the first in the kingdom of heaven. Now, if I was Jesus and I ain't, I mean, I'd be furious. I am, do you know what I'm about to do? And you're arguing about who's going to be first? All he said was this. The first will be last. Last will be first, first will be last. That's all he said. You guys keep arguing about being first. That is not compatible with this new community I'm raising up. So now doubt they're thinking, okay, so if I intentionally walk a journey of being last, can I be first? Like, no, your motive's wrong, right? It's, it's about taking last place. That really is the walk of Jesus. And it takes a long, long time, right? A lot of change of heart there. But it's about taking last place always. That's what Jesus did. And that doesn't right, work just right with our culture, right? We've got to get to the first. We've got to get our way. We've got to manipulate. We've got to do our thing. Jesus says, be very comfortable in last place. And he gave us the model of that when he laid down his own life. So their mouths were quiet. He did remind them, hey, by the way, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I don't need you talking about who's going first. Then immediately after Jesus said that, mommy comes alongside of her two boys who are disciples. And mommy says, hey, we're going to get you on the right hand of Jesus. We're going to get you on the left hand of Jesus. So she goes to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, will you put my sons in power positions in the kingdom of heaven? And that's when Jesus said this, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, I'm coming to give my life. I'm coming to serve. If you want to follow me, it's not a manipulated journey to the front. It's about being last place and being okay with that, being so secure in your relationship with me, so secure in who I made you, so secure that you are a son of God, a daughter of God, so secure that you are loved by God unconditionally that we can walk into any relationship and in any community and being comfortable taking last place. That's sort of the leadership journey here at, at Rancho. It's not a leadership journey to the front in first place and honor, right? We don't do honor around here. I mean, the, the more you go in Rancho's world, you are parking further away and you are like hiking, hitchhiking here. I mean, you, you are taking places of service and last place and no special benefits, right? You're, you're, just, you're just going to be serving. All the way down to the board level. The board around here, they're at the bottom. They're the scuzz of the earth, right? Willingly bearing the burdens, bearing more burdens so that other people can thrive in ministry and life and marriage. If you go down in leadership here at Rancher, you're going down to the bottom of the hull of the ship, you know, just rowing the oars so that other people can thrive. That's the ministry model of Jesus Christ. It starts with selflessness. Then there's vision. There's got to be a vision for a compelling community of peace. And I will tell you, the American church has lost its vision for a community of peace. The American church over the last 70 years or so basically has said this world is going to uh, crumble, this world is going to be destroyed, and let's just get people off of this sinking ship. That's been the thinking of the Western church for so many years. So we've lost a vision of a compelling community that, that, that thrives and grows and ultimately becomes the culture of the entire world. We've lost that vision. But let's listen to the vision of Jesus. This is what Jesus is praying for. Jesus is praying for a future that he sees. He says, my prayer is for all who will believe in me. He's praying for the future. That all of them may be one, united, loving, peaceful community. Just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. This is what Jesus is praying for. He's praying that the entire world would believe in him. The entire world will know the love of Christ. Why? Because his people are so united and loving. 
His people, this new community, this church that he brings together, the church that he gathers, gathers together would be so loving to one another, so united with one another, so peaceful together that they will flock, the world will flock to Jesus Christ because they see him in his church. That's what Jesus prayed for. And yet so much of the American church has lost hope. How about we pray to be the answer to Jesus' prayer? That we could be so loving, so committed, so united, so peaceful together that the world around us will be drawn to Christ because they see him so clearly in us. Jesus' vision is that the church becomes such a community of peaceful unity that the whole world ends up following Christ. That's what he prayed for. Let's get on board with that. So it begins with selflessness, then have a vision, and then thirdly, equality. You cannot have peace without equality. In fact, you may have heard at various rallies at various times, no justice, no peace. I don't know what your emotional reaction to that is, but it's absolutely true. You cannot have peace without justice. And Jesus brought the justice of the kingdom of heaven so that there would be equality, so that there would be no one left behind, there would be no one who's powerless and voiceless, that those who are weak, those who are sick, those who are poor, those who are victimized would be lifted up to have equal dignity and equal respect. Now, some of you might be getting a little nervous as you're gonna get into politics. I'm not talking about politics. I don't care much about that right now. Left, right, Republican, Democrat, whatever issues of the day are, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the heart of Christ, the heart of Christ to bring equality to this earth. Literally, Jesus' final breaths were speaking this message right here. He says, I was hungry. He says this to his disciples. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was homeless and you gave me a room. I was shivering and you gave me clothes. I was sick and you stopped to visit. I was in prison and you came to me. And the disciples look at Jesus and they say, Jesus, you were never in prison. We're pretty sure about that. You're not sick. What's the deal? And he says this, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. How we treat those who are the least, last, and lost, how we treat those who are suffering, how we treat those who are in need, how we advocate for them and helping them, not just with maybe condescending handouts, but with relationship and respect, elevating them to a place where they know they are absolutely equal with us, absolutely equal with us. This is about us advocating for the things that bring equality. This is about advocating for equal access to every opportunity. It's advocating for equal education for all, equal access to jobs. And when you get a job, equal pay. This is about equal treatment under the law, equal access to the justice system, equal representation, equal access to essential health care, and absolute equal respect and dignity throughout society. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about the kingdom of heaven. I'm talking about looking at the life of Jesus and getting on board with what he advocated for. And he spent the bulk of his life elevating those who were marginalized, elevating those who were victimized, elevating those who were trapped in systemic poverty, voicelessness, powerlessness, and elevating them. I'm gonna tell you the story of a guy we'll call Joe, that's not his name, but I still know him and he may get a hold of this sermon, so I'm not gonna use his name. Elderly black man who grew up uh, in the deep south. And by elderly, I mean probably 80 plus. Uh, A few years ago, I was put on a team uh, in a network that I'm involved in. And uh, he was a part of a team of about six. I was put in charge of that team. And and we worked really well together for three years. And then it came time to kind of shuffle that team. Some things were going on, had to change this and that. And it involved changing his position. 
And, you know, to me, it was not a big deal. And I thought, you know, we had developed a friendship over the three years. And I said, hey, you know, Joe, we're going to make some changes here. We're going to shuffle some things around. And he became furious in an instant, absolutely furious with me. And I'm going to give you a virtual quote. This may not be word to word, but it's very, very close. He said, boy, let me tell you, and he's raging at me. Boy, let me tell you, I am never going to take anything from any white man. And he laid into me. Now, I, I can tend to be a fairly confident person here and there, at least pretend like I am. And so uh, I thought, okay, it's on, right? It is on like Donkey Kong, and we are going to have a little, we're going to have it out. And, and I was going through a season of life where I was really trying to step more in humility in these areas in particular. We're talking about social issues, social justice issues, racial reconciliation. I was getting deeper and deeper into that, and, and I loved every minute of it. And I thought to myself, this is not the time to battle with this guy. This is the time to, to learn this is the time for humility, this is the time for apology, and this is the time for me to just kind of soak up a whole new relationship here and hopefully be enriched by it. And so we spent a couple hours together, and then we had some follow-up as well. And, 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 and I, I should have put two and two together, but I didn't, and that's on me. And I apologize to him for this and, and a couple other things. He's an elderly man who grew up in the Deep South, meaning he grew up under Jim Crow laws. Now, when we think of Jim Crow laws, we think of history books. I mean, I wasn't, I never experienced Jim Crow. I lived in California here. Uh, California was barely a state, right? And I think of Jim Crow as 19th century. Well, Jim Crow didn't expire until the civil rights movement of the 1950s. And so he grew up under Jim Crow. In other words, there were stores he couldn't go into. There was restaurants he couldn't visit. He had to go to colored restrooms and drink out of colored drinking fountains. This is his experience. And, and, and his whole community around him had that shared experience. So he is bearing the burdens, not just of his upbringing, but generations before him, hundreds of years of oppression and slavery and injustice, not having equal access, and spending his entire life advocating for equal access for minorities. And so what did I represent to him? Not a lot that was good. And that little just kind of change triggered a lot of stuff, a lot of hurt, a lot of wounds. And so I had to learn a lot. Equality is a big part of peace. If we are not striving for equality, we're not striving for peace. A fourth ingredient of peace is authenticity. Authenticity. This is the secret sauce of a peaceful community. It's the secret sauce. And it is so elusive. In fact, the young people today, we're talking about millennials, really thrive in authenticity. They're craving authenticity. And uh, the older generations are comfortable with things being postured, you know? I posture myself this way at work, I posture myself this way in my neighborhood. Older generations can posture well. You can call it flexibility, call it whatever you want to, but just kind of knowing how to get along in different environments. Uh, young people today don't want the posturing. They want it real, they want it raw, and so entertainment is more raw. They don't like to be like marketed with fake stuff. That's why social media is a big deal because you just kind of get it raw. Um, and so young people want raw, unfiltered stuff. But here's a quote from Relevant Magazine. All of the things the millennial generation wants of the church, authenticity may be the most important. They want authenticity. One of them said this, we crave a place and people we can be our true selves with, and I'll get that, be our true selves with and be truly loved. That is the test of Christianity itself. If people can be real with us and then we love them in return, we pass. If they're real with us, with all their junk and messiness and different opinions and different ways of life and all that stuff, and we don't love them, 
Christianity itself fails. This is a big test of Christianity. They say we're crawling out from the bushes and searching for more. Now, the millennials haven't abandoned church quite yet. Thinking about it, but haven't quite yet abandoned it. There's a big test of how authentic we're going to be. Now, I'm telling you, standard bread and butter church life is horrifically inauthentic. There's several reasons why. Number one, what church life is, is a lot of kind of assembling and sitting, not a lot of dialogue, discussion, getting to know each other. That's why small groups are so incredibly important. We can build some relationships here. We can hang out in the lobbies. And I encourage all of you, adults, kids, go on the jumpies out there. It's awesome. Tons of fun. We can build some relationships out there to a degree at church, but that's why small groups are so important. We have a hundred and some small groups, and that's where relationships are built. People get to know each other, and, and over time, you build enough trust to be authentic, right? So church is kind of hard because we just don't have the right environment sometimes to build authentic relationships. The other reason why it's inauthentic is because pastors tend to be quite insecure for a lot of reasons. Pastors, um, you lead a, a religious organization, right? And so the expectations are that you're going to be good and right and moral and that you're, you're not going to have any cracks in there. You're not going to fail. Your family's going to look pretty dialed in. There's a lot of pressure to be a religious leader. So you can imagine if, if a religious leader gets up in front of their congregation and they just vomit every horrible thing in their head and heart and habits, here's, what I, here's the truth. I guarantee most of the church is awkwardly going to start finding another church. Because that's not what we signed up for. We signed up for it to be a certain way. But it's not that way. I know just about every pastor in town. Help lead a local network here. And, and this may be a shock, but, but they're human. And some of them are insecure. And some of them are afraid to be authentic. And I understand that. I totally understand that. Um, you come to church and the pastor, a buttoned-up pastor, tells you to believe like he does and behave like he does, and then we get the impression that, well, it's all about obedience and it's all about looking a certain way, and so that's the expectation. So when I get to church, that's the way it's going to be. That's the ruse I'm going to kind of, you know, move forward. This started in my life when I was in youth group. I received Christ at Rancho as a, as a teenager and got involved in youth group, and nothing really wrong with this per se, but the pinnacle of youth group, the top, you know, the cream of the crud, was the discipleship kids, discipleship kids. Discipleship's not even a, really a biblical word, but it's a, it's a discipleship program of reading your Bible, praying, memorizing verses, obeying, sharing your faith, going to church. I mean, this was the plan, right? So I joined discipleship. It's what you're supposed to do. And I was a, I was a good kid, you know? I was, my brother was out there street fighting and, you know, messing around with drugs and all that. I was the good kid, right? Good at school, so I went to church, good at complying at home, good at complying at church. And so I just went right to discipleship group. And there's a workbook and things like that. And you got to go through the workbook. And you're supposed to do it every day. Well, I did it driving to youth group. Now, this is back in the days where you didn't have to wear a seatbelt. Children can play in the back of a pickup truck because you're cruising on the freeway, right? So I'm driving to youth group with my, you know, bowl of uh, Chinese food and doing my workbook as I'm driving, right? And I remember, I vividly remember going to the house where we were meeting for discipleship and I'm wrapping up my workbook right there in the parking lot. You go into youth group. Oh yeah, I did my devotions every day, read the Bible, prayed, memorized my verse. Here it is. Want me to tell you? I memorized it 14 seconds ago in the driveway. Here's my memory verse. That's discipleship. And everybody's, oh, Scott, you're doing so great, man, super spiritual. Why don't you be in leadership? And then why don't you be the president of the youth group and then an intern at the youth group and then a youth pastor and then senior pastor. It's all a big sham. It's a fraud. 
But I bore the, the guilt of that as well because here I am really kind of pretending like I've got it all together and I really didn't. I'm not going to tell people, I've got some questions about this Bible thing. I've got some things. I've got some doubts. I've got some issues. Can, no, I can't really, no, doubts. I got this girlfriend and she's super cute and we're kind of messing around and no, I don't think I should share that either. I got a stack of magazines. Can we talk about my stack of magazines? It's back in the day. No, I was not talking about the stack of magazines. A little easier these days. I mean, there's just things that you can't talk about in church. And so you just kind of keep moving along. And so for most people, it's just at some point, you just get to a point where this whole thing is this whole thing kind of a game. I can't be authentic. I can't be real. And then there's a whole debate now about authentic community versus holiness. Don't even get into it. Don't even bother. But there's a hundred and some books on authentic community. And there's a whole rebuttal. Oh, authentic community, they just celebrate their sin. They're, they're just so authentic with each other and open and real that, oh, I, I'm blowing it here. Oh, wonderful. You mess up too. Well, I mess up too. And let's just all have a big group hug in our, in our screw-ups. And so there's a holiness group out here that says, oh, you authentic community people, you're just celebrating your failures. Well, that, that's not true. That is emphatically not true. And we do this every single day. Somebody, because we're a grace-filled church, love-filled church, we're not rules, regulations, religious burdens and yokes, people will come up to us and say, I just, I'm, I'm being honest, I am cheating on my spouse. Do you think when somebody tells one of our pastors or counselors or volunteer pastors or small group facilitators, I'm cheating on my spouse, oh, nobody's perfect, I'm a sinner too. Woo, you wanna grab a beer? That is not happening. When somebody has a moment of authenticity and they come to anybody in church, a friend, facilitator, volunteer pastor, staff pastor, counselor, and they have an honest confession, it's usually with a great deal of tears and remorse. And they know they have qualified themselves to lose their whole family, but they're done with it. And they're going to walk a very, very painful journey, maybe saving their family, maybe not but they're gonna become a different person because they know what they're doing is not honoring God, but they feel safe enough in a community to make a confession of a failure, not so we can you know, put up balloons and streamers for your failure, but because you have come to a point where you trust this community enough to say, hey, I want to do better. And by God's grace and by God's love and in God's forgiveness in a community of peace, we're gonna walk this journey together. That's bearing one another's burdens that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6 too. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. You want to know what the law of Christ is? You want to know what the commandment of Christ is? It's not managing the yoke, this heavy burden of religious do's and don'ts and commandments. It's to love and to bear one another's burdens. I have burdens you can help carry. That lightens my load. You have burdens I can help carry. And as we bear one another's burdens, we walk this journey together, not of celebrating each other's failures, but we're walking a journey towards the likeness of Christ, this slow journey, this complex journey towards the likeness of Christ, but we're doing it together and we're doing it honestly, honestly. The Apostle Paul wrote half the New Testament and here's what he says about himself. I am unspiritual. I don't think he knew he was writing it for billions and billions of people. I am unspiritual. He also called himself the chief of all sinners. I'm sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Have you ever felt that way about your own life and your own habits and your own thoughts? I know I shouldn't do it, but I do it. Why do I keep doing it? 
And you go to church and they will say, as was taught to me, you keep sinning in the same way, you might not even be saved. I'm like, oh, whoa. And the things I want to do, I just don't do. And you go to church and you get hammered for that. That doesn't do any good. What does good is a, an authentic community walking this journey together. I'm taking more time with you because I can. One more thing, and that's commitment. Children's ministry is going to be all up in arms. Final thing, we're almost done. Final thing is commitment. Commitment. We've got to commit to be a community of peace. We've got to commit to have this kind of peaceful, authentic community working for equality in a selfless way, loving each other deeply and fiercely. It's got to be a commitment. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul says this, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In religious circles, okay, live a life worthy of the calling, obedience, commitment, hardcore, all in? No. Here's what Jesus says. Here's the life that God wants us to live. Be humble and gentle. It's a community of peace. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. It's an authentic community. Make every effort, here's the commitment part, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. That's what it means to live a life worthy of our calling. A life of peace together where we are selfless. We have a vision for what a community of peace can mean to our community and to our world. We are striving for equality so that nobody is marginalized. An authentic community and a commitment, making every effort to keep this bond together. And what happens is what's happening at Rancho. A homeless young man at Rancho getting off a of heroin. He lives in his car. He's getting off a of heroin. He comes here every single week. Meets a retired, lifelong, conservative churchgoer from a religious background. How fun is that? A skeptic comes back to church after 20 years away, done with church, done with all of the religious burden, Comes to Rancho after 20 years away. Meets a young man, zealot, firm in his faith, knows all the answers. How's that relationship going to go? Very fun. A woman seeking redemption after cheating on her husband meets a woman who just celebrated 60 years of faithful marriage. And they get to walk with each other. A man who was bullied in his youth for being gay meets a, a woman who was born and raised in a sheltered environment who's walking the complex and uncomfortable journey of love. A fourth grade girl is struggling through her parents' divorce and she meets a high school girl who has also gone through that divorce serving in our children's ministry. And there's an elderly black man who grew up under Jim Crow, meets a white 11th grader by the cafe and they get to share each other's stories and enrich each other's lives. That's a community of peace. Not everyone from the exact same background, not everyone with the exact same experiences and the exact same politics and the exact same perspectives or the exact same theology walking lockstep robotically, but a wonderfully complex, sometimes difficult community of peace. And what does Jesus say? If we live as a community of peace, the whole world will know the love of Christ because they see it in us. Let's commit to that. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that you have shown the fullness of your love by sending your son who did not come to be served but to serve and he gave his life, willingly gave his life, even for his disciples who were arguing about who was gonna be first. As he walked the steps towards the cross, he was patient with them and kind with them, having the spirit of forgiveness. And thank you that we can, can experience your forgiveness as well with all of our false flaws, failures, and sin. We're forgiven by you, not because of anything we've done, but purely by your love and grace. And I pray that it is by your grace that you would compel us to strive for peace, to have a peaceful community, 
bearing with one another in an authentic way, advocating for equality for all, being selfless and having this vision of what could happen if we walk in perfect unity, if we practice the love of Jesus Christ for one another, if we patiently forbear with one another and walk with each other in grace, that will be an incredible bright shining light for our entire region to see because they see the love of Christ at work in us. In his name we pray, amen.